In Jesus' name, everybody said. If you could bring out the, uh, the word cloud, welcome to New Covenant Church. Uh, this is an opportunity to come and meet with God. That's what worship is. It's the opportunity for us to encounter the living and true God. When some people say, what is truth? It's the same as saying, where is God? And I want to encourage you today that, to know that you're in a Bible-believing church. We're gospel-driven. Uh, we're worship-cherishing. Hopefully, we're friendly. We're caring. We're uh, blended in the sense that we uh, try to bring the music from all sorts of places in Christendom together so that the people of God can make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And the multi-generational has to do with the fact that we really would love for young and old to be able to come into God's presence together rather than just separating and segregating. But at this time, if those that would like to have some additional training, there is uh, special ministry available. Uh, but if you'll turn in your Bibles, open up to the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at, uh, at chapter 16. Romans 16, it's in your pew Bible, page 1209. Uh, before I go there, I just want to remind you that during the month, or during the, the year 2021, uh, I have been advancing the theme, Kiss the Sun in 21. Now that comes from Psalm 2, and uh, Psalm 2 is an interesting passage. Uh, but with all the turmoil that was going on at the end of last year and with all the, the, uh, the scary stuff that was being generated uh, in, in the beginning of January this year, uh, it has been a comforting verse. Kiss the sun in 21. It comes right out of the uh, passage there where David, the psalmist, is telling people, uh, he says, hey, take a moment, take a breath. He says, he asked the question, why do the heathen rage? Why do the people imagine vain things? And why do the leaders of this world try to cut themselves off from God? Why do they try to cut the cords of Christianity? Why do they do it? And why are they angry doing it? I mean, the, the old King James calls it rage. Why do they rage against Christianity? And it's interesting. They plot together. They plan together. They come up with their alternatives, their substitutes. And they even seem to be pretty effective. And it could be very disheartening for the average person if you're watching the world with all of their institutions and systems coming together to cut off Christianity. David doesn't end the psalm there. He says, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh. And I want to encourage you today that as you think about all the things that we're experiencing, how Christianity seems to be cut away from education, it's cut out of the media, it's cut out of even some churches. They're very religious, but they don't, they have a Christless religion. It's really sad that so many still claim to be Christians when they don't even know Christ. But when you understand that the one that sits in the heavens is laughing or can laugh because he can have them in derision because he has set his king upon his holy hill of Zion. And that is what we just said. Christ alone has been hoisted up and he has become the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And as a result, we have nothing to fear. That is why, as we just sang, uh, we, we are comforted in knowing the King of Kings. And that's why Psalm 2 ends by saying, run to the Son, embrace the Son of God. Don't push Him away. Don't even keep Him at arm's length. Kiss the Son. You don't want Him to be angry and you perish from the way. And that's why blessed are all those who put their faith in Him. That is why we're a Bible-believing, 
God, uh, a, a gospel-driven church. Now, we're opening up the Word of God today. It is the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word as it was given in the originals. And we're looking at the book of Romans. Uh, so if you'll turn in your Bibles there, you'll be able to follow along. Romans chapter 16. Now, for those of you that are pretty witty, you're going to know that Romans is a New Testament book. Uh, it is one of the bigger epistles. An epistle was a letter written by one of the apostles, and he wrote it to individuals or to churches. In this particular book, it was written to the people that lived in the area of Rome. Okay, now, I don't know if you've been to Rome or not. I've been there. It's pretty neat to see that old Colosseum that's still up there, even though it's in ruins. It's pretty neat to look at some of the big, giant churches that are there. Uh, even to go and take a look at the Vatican and see that beautiful painting of the Sistine Chapel and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, it's, it, there's some beauty there. But what Paul was focused on was not on the buildings, but it was on people, the value of souls. And when you look at the book of Romans, you'll, you're, and especially in chapter 16, we're going to notice that there were people in Rome. All the things that I just mentioned to you were things. They're stones and rocks that people put together and they, they built. But what really matters, and when it's all said and done, is people. And so therefore, when we look at this text, I want to uh, reverently attend to the public reading of this, of this uh, beautiful text. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter 16, so if you're following along with me, you can see that there, it's portioned out in a couple of different places, but I do want you to see it, and uh, before we actually read it, I was going to ask you, uh, is this your favorite chapter? You know, when you go through the Romans Road, how many of you actually do some parking there in uh, chapter 16? Well, I'm trying to do this in reverse. So if you would join with me, I want to start with the doxology first, and then I want to go back. Uh, the doxology begins at verse 25, and uh, it's something I hope we'll finish our worship service today and for the next few weeks on the same thing. Uh, I was preaching on it last week, and I'm not sure if it really sunk in. Maybe it was a little too much because Paul was so excited when he finally got to the conclusion. Now look at it here. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. That's pretty cool. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And also according to the revelation of the mystery that had been kept secret for a long time, for long ages. But now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all the nations. That was the second part of that, that thing. He says, wow. It's all been made known. And it's to bring people to about, uh, uh, excuse me, the third part there, uh, to make all the nations know that uh, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. Those are the three things that we saw in the text. And then he says, in light of those three things, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. And he doesn't tail off and say, Amen. He tails off with, uh, he doesn't tail off, but he actually is climaxing. Amen. It's almost like singing the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. You know, at the end, you know, you, you just don't fall asleep at the end. You actually build, build, build. He has come to a crescendo. Truly, truly, this is true. Now, I want to be able to read the whole text of chapter 16 with you. So if you follow along with me, uh, we'll take notice. In chapter 16, the Apostle Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Crenshia, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. 
beautiful. Beautiful. Now, in verses 3 and, and all the way down, you're going to find to uh, uh, verse 17, there is a, another theme, and there's a key word that you'll see in each verse. Uh, it begins, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Greet my beloved Epenetus, uh, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are all well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Amphilius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. And greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyndicris, uh, Phlegion, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogos, I never always want to mispronounce that one. Philogos, uh, Julia, Neros, uh, Nerus, and his sister uh, Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, and all the churches of Christ, they greet you. After he has finished that section now, he moves to another portion there before the doxology. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. Verse 6, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive, for your obedience is known to all. So that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good, and I want you to be innocent as to what is evil. Verse 20, the God of peace. He'll soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, as so does Lucius and Jason and Sassipater. Uh, my kinsman, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, they greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that had been kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to the nations and according to the command of the eternal God to bring about an obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, exclamation point, amen. Now, some of you may be glad, wow, I'm glad he got through those names. He didn't mess up too many of them. Uh, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I do ask that you'll take the reading of the word, and especially now the preaching of the word, and make it an effectual means to the saving of lost souls and for the equipping of the saints for ministry. Oh, Lord, I do pray that as we study these passages, that you will speak to our hearts so that we might remember what was already 
being taught to these people in the earlier chapters of Romans. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't have a ton of time to be able to tackle all of these things, but I'll tell you, this is an exciting chapter. And it's not just exciting because it's at the end of Romans, but it's, it's there exciting because it's the application of Romans. When you go through the doctrines of grace and you see all these things recorded for you from Romans chapter 1 all the way through Romans chapter uh, 11, it's pretty fascinating. And then you see from chapter 12 on when he says, I beg of you that you would present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is reasonable. It's your spiritual service. You can see that the Apostle Paul is just, man, he, he's, he's, uh, he's got a full cup and he wants to spill it out. Now, chapter 16 tells us a lot about how this is applied. And it's great preparation for us as we come to the Lord's table in just a few moments. Uh, I want to be able to expose to you what is in the text. I want to be able to unpack it. Uh, that's what we've been calling expository preaching. It's exposing what's already there, not reading into it something that we want to be there. The Word of God is, is perspicuous, meaning it's sufficiently clear for us to be able to discern what our God wants us to know. So we're starting there in Romans. Normally you would start in chapter 1 and you'd march your way through. I'm actually starting at the end. And if you, if you catch on already, I'm wanting you to have the excitement that the Apostle Paul had when he finished and he said, Amen! It's because he's, he's given us a masterpiece. Through the Holy Spirit... Speaking through the apostle, we are able to see things that a lot of people had not understood before this. It had been hidden as a mystery. And now he says it's finally being revealed. Now, what is the turning point? I have to tell you, it's the cross. You see, there was a lot of things that were not understood until Jesus had to die. Until the blood of Calvary's lamb was spilt. The greatest moment of all time had to happen. And it had happened in Paul's lifetime. Did you ever think about that? I've often argued that uh, of all the, uh, the apostles, uh, Paul was one of the younger ones. You know, he in chapter 7 of Acts, he was standing there holding the coats when they were stoning Stephen. He was just a young guy. He was younger than Peter and, and some of the rest of the disciples that had hung out with Jesus. But just what does that tell you? That means that if Paul was standing there in Acts chapter 7, that means Paul was a young man in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascended to heaven. And that took place only 50 days earlier, or basically just a few months before Jesus had actually been hoisted on the cross. And when you realize, we can get to those details because the text doesn't tell us exactly how old he was. I always pictured him 10 years younger than Peter. But if, if you just realize, the Paul, who was known as Saul in those days... He was there. He was there. And finally, when he writes this, this epistle, this letter to the church at Rome, he's explaining some things that he probably had to just orally tell folks, but because he didn't get to travel there, he puts it in writing. And boy, are we thankful. And I pray that it'll give you that same kind of excitement at the end. Uh, and so the book of Romans in chapter 16, we find some interesting contrasts. There's some interesting contrasts here. Last week we talked about the great doxology and I was trying to show you the different parts of it and I'll even highlight it again today. But today in chapter 16 there are three contrasts that are great. And uh, you may not have even noticed them as we read through them because you get bogged down in the 33 names that are listed there. There's even more parties that are there that are, that are referenced but they're not given specific people's names. So we just have to assume there's groups. 
as well as the individuals. So we're looking at, at uh, chapter 16. I want to show three main points, uh, three, think, three major contrasts. If you're following along with your fourth point, you'll be able to see it. I want you to see the great contrast between God and all others. And then I want to take you from that understanding and show you the great contrast between those who serve Christ and all the others who serve other gods. And then thirdly, I want you to see the great, great contrast between the church of Rome and interestingly, the church in Corinth. All of that's found in chapter 16, and you may not have caught on to it. There is a huge difference between God and all others is the first point. And the way I can tell you that is that Paul has listed over 30-some people, 35 entities, and yet at the end he ends up saying they don't even compare to God. They don't compare to the Great One. And I call this the maker distinction. And, and, and this is the creator versus the creature distinction. Jesus and the Father and the Son, uh, excuse me, and the Spirit are, are so much grander. And that's why when you look at the doxology, after he's listed all these names, he still looks at, at them and he says, they are not worthy to be compared with him. So even though there's all these great people who have done great things, people who have lived here and gone there, they've done extremely uh, strenuous stuff, they've sacrificed, they've given up on a lot, but he says, put them behind. We want to look to Jesus. That's why in Hebrews he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There's many places that can show you, but in chapter 19, verse 25, he says, now unto him, now unto God. And the great contrast is that there's God and then there's everybody else. Uh, Peter Jones has set up a ministry about one-ism or two-ism. And it's clear that we are a two-ism group. And what I mean by that is there is God and then there's everything else. And there is no blending God with everything else. That's pantheism. That's, that's involved in Eastern uh, mysticism. That's involved in some of the pantheism that is being crept in in some of those other false religions that are, that are usually in Asia that have crept into America as well. But there are two distinct things. There is God, the maker, and then there is what he made. And when you get this, it's pretty amazing that you never are going to be confused. You never look to any man, whether he's on TV all the time and whether he gives you instruction about how to live or how to be healthy. I'm thinking of the one guy that's on TV all the time. You know who I'm talking about. I don't even have to mention names. But there's a lot of folks who you will look at and you'll hear their earthly voice and you'll think that they're so important. Be careful that you don't, that you don't blend the great distinction, the great contrast that there's God and then there's everything that's God made. Now unto God, who is able, and this is how I like to summarize it real brief for you, there is the God who can, there's the God who did, and there's the God who wanted to. If you look at that, that doxology, that's what it boils down to. He is able. You know, he has the dunamis, he has the power. He can. You know, other people, we all disappoint. Everybody disappoints. We haven't lived up to our standards and our expectations with one another. But God supersedes them because he does all his holy will. So not only God can, but he does. And when you look at those three things, how he has, has purposed it so that the gospel would be preached and so, so that the apostle Paul would be raised up. You read about his conversion in Acts 9. Nobody would have thought that the apostle Paul would be the preacher writing Romans, the book of Romans in, Roman, excuse me, in Acts chapter 8. 
In Acts chapter 8, the guy's name was Saul, and he was a jerk. He was, a, he was really religious. He was so powerfully involved. He was so uh, zealous that he was trying to shut the mouths of everybody who would talk about this guy rising from the dead. He was pretty potent at it, too. He was quite winsome and quite, um, quite a, man, a, maneuver, a maneuverer. Wow. Who would have ever thought that that guy who was in obscurity would end up getting the authority to even go to different places, even up to Syria and Damascus, to be able to wipe out the Christians there, too? It's pretty fascinating that God took that guy, that guy, and put him in the gospel ministry. See, this is the God who can, but also the God who did. When you look back over your own life, you're going to see all the things that God has done. And the way that the doxology ends up saying it is that God did this in his timetable. It was hidden for a long time. Finally, when the fullness of time came, Galatians 4.4, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem those who are under the curse of the law. He did all this on exactly at the right moment. Wow. And that's why the mystery is no longer mysterious because the world, all the ethnic groups now know that the gospel is to go to the ends of the earth and not just to the Jewish community. Before this time, the Jewish community had been blessed to be able to preserve the lineage for Christ. And finally, when the Christ arrived and John the baptizer had to prepare the way for him to let the people know that the Messiah here is here, the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world is here. And now that he's been hoisted up on the cross, now that he's uh, rose from the dead, now that he's ascended into heaven, the Apostle Paul now has this good news, this gospel message that he's not ashamed of, Gen uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, 16 and 17. It's pretty fascinating that he says, that's the God who can, not only can do it, but he did do it. And now the world knows. According, and then he says, and, the, and the God is doing this. One more thing, it's a it's a progressive thing he is according to the command of the eternal god to bring about an obedience to faith i, I kind of moved past that quickly before but it comes down to this god has purposed that our lives will be different nobody likes to say that they're obedient are you obedient do you want to be known as being obedient you know do you make sure you click your your seatbelt when you get in the car that you never go over the posted speed limit you never are mean to people. I mean, if you go down the list of all the things that you're supposed to do to be a good citizen, are you obedient? There's a lot of things that they want you to do that are kind of excessive too, but, but this is an obedience of faith. This, is, this means that your will submits to his will. And so just like when Jesus went to Gethsemane and he said, Father, not my will be done, but thine. This is what happens that when we grow up in Christ, when we mature in the faith, you're going to find that the obedience of faith is something that you want to do, not something you have to do. And hence, when Romans chapter 12 is brought out, and he says, I beg of you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is reasonable. That's what he's talking about, an obedience to the faith. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now, having said all that, the glory comes to God. I told you there's three main contrasts. The first is with God and everybody else. You can see how clearly it is that the 33 people don't even compare to God. When you start talking about God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're totally different. And they're the only ones to receive your glory and honor and praise. Now, I told you that there's a different contrast in this text, too. And it's found, if you look at verse one, uh, chapter, uh, 19, or chapter 16, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, 
And then beginning in verse 3, greet the list of people, beginning with Priscilla and Aquila. Now, that's, that's a big part of the imperatives of chapter 16. But if you jump down to verse 17, then he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those uh, who cause divisions. And he says, avoid them. All of that in verse 17. There's something going on here that you would be confused about if you didn't see the helicopter view here. There's a contrast with the all others. Remember, we have all the people and we have God, and God is the only one to receive worship. That's the first contrast. Now I'm taking you to this group of people here, and I'm trying to show you that there's two, two defining features in this group of people. There are the people who have Jesus as their master, and there are people here who don't. All the others... So within this group of people that are not to be worshipped, but in this, in this group you find the ones that you commend and you, uh, you want to greet and have fellowship with, and then you also have in this big group of people that are, that are created human beings, there are people that you're supposed to take notice of and avoid. Pastor, that doesn't sound very Christian. Aren't we supposed to love everybody and be inclusive of everything? You know, can't we just get along? Can't we just be at peace? No, there's a distinction here. The first contrast was over the maker. The maker had the, the creator and creature distinctive. The second one has to do with the master distinctive. Is Jesus your master or not? Look at verse 17. Let me read it for you and then you'll see exactly. I appeal to you, brothers in Rome, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that has been taught. Avoid those people, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the key to the text. These people do not serve Christ. He is not their master. And then he goes on to explain what their master is. But their master is their own appetites. That's kind of a pregnant word. Uh, what, what, do you, what are you hungry for? You know? What is it that you want? That's what your appetite is all about. This is talking about your selfish ambition. As Proverbs 3 says, it's leaning on your own understanding. The big contrast here is right there in verse 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the big difference. Do you serve the Lord Jesus Christ or do you not? Is he your master or are you, is something else mastering you? Now, once you understand this, it's pretty fascinating that the, uh, the context here in Romans 16 is that, uh, is that the, the imperatives change. I'm not going to be able to dive into the depths of all of it right now, but I want you to be able to see that the Apostle Paul is looking at that, like I said, here's God and here's all the people. So then I go to all the people, and, and here you have a, a, the split. You have the people that are serving the, the Master and those who are not. Okay, so these are the people that know God, that are followers of God, they're disciples of God. The word in the, in their, in the text here is that they have the sound doctrines, they've been taught the word of God. And, and remember, we're in chapter 16 of what book? And so in the book of Romans, how do you get to chapter 16? You have to start at verse chapter 1 and go through. These people have already read all about the great doctrines. Okay, it's very, very interesting that these people that have Jesus as their master, they know the doctrines, they've been taught, they've been discipled. Even the word mathetes, which is disciple, is right in there from uh, Matthew 28, where it says, go and make disciples. Well, that's what these people who are having Christ as their master are. And then there's the folks way over here. They're out of the light. I'll stay. They're, these are in the darkness. 
Okay? So you got the people in the light that have Jesus as their master and the people over here that don't have Jesus as their master. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he, wrote, when he writes chapter 16, he talks about the people that are in the light, the people that, are, that have Christ as their master. And he says, wow, he says, hey, let me give you a few imperatives. There's this gal named Phoebe. Help her. Help Phoebe. And then he goes on, I think, 14 times, and he says, greet this person, greet this person, greet this person, greet this person, greet this person. Are you getting the idea? I mean, you can't go through Romans 16 without seeing the word greet, 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 greet. Almost sound like I'm, I'm that guy, Groot, I am Groot. You know, you just say that word over and over, and it becomes like, well, it doesn't mean anything. I want to tell you, it does mean something. The Apostle Paul is writing to the believers there in Rome, the people that are in the light, the people that have Jesus as their master, and he says, you ought to really help this helper. And you ought to come alongside and greet and have uh, the idea of greeting there. I'm going to explain it has to do with fellowship. And then their third thing is make sure you remain, remain pure. Because in verse 17 and 18, he says, hey, you that are in the light, make sure that you are paying attention to those in the company that are not Christians. They may say they are, but they're not following Christ. They are following their own appetites. And they have flattering speech and they have smooth words. And you know what they're trying to do? They're trying to trick you. They're trying to deceive the naive. And that's an interesting kind of thing. So to these people, I want to be able to say the Apostle Paul is very upbeat, got thumbs up. He's given them all these kinds of names. And if you look at it, uh, let me just show you a few of the things that are going on with these people in Romans 16. Uh, and Priscilla and Aquila, you know what they were? They risked their necks. I mean, they actually tried to rescue Paul. They put their life in jeopardy. They also had a church that met in their household. So apparently they had a good-sized house that allowed for people to be able to meet. Uh, if you look there in verse uh, 6, uh, no, excuse me, if, in verse 5, he says, uh, greet uh, the fellow that was a first convert in Asia. The first guy that in Asia came to faith. Praise God, he wasn't the last one. You know, but just think about that. This first fellow that heard the gospel message and faith came to him. By the way, how did people come to faith? Well, if you turn over to Romans chapter 10, uh, I want to be able to just read a few things that they already understood, and I hope that you will understand. In Romans 10, he says in uh, verse 14, How will they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preach? Verse 15, And how are they to preach unless someone sent them? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Wow. You see, when you see that uh, this guy... Saul, Paul, with beautiful feet. Somebody preached the gospel to this first convert. Now, if you go into verse 6, you're going to find out that there was a lady named Mary. And what is she known for? She was lazy, right? No, she wasn't lazy. If you look at chapter, uh, verse 7, then you find the, these, this uh, Andronicus and Junia. Uh, when it says they were kinsmen and fellow prisoners, you know what that means? It means that they had a Jewish upbringing, so they knew how to read Hebrew, probably. They knew they were familiar with the Old Testament prophets and the writings, and they, because that's what the Jews did. They taught their kids the Shema and all the other things from the Old Testament. And so these people, his kinsmen, were fellow Jews. But you know what else they did? They suffered. Let me tell you, when they went to jail in those days, they did not have closed-circuit TV. They didn't have three square meals. They didn't have a gym set up for them. 
you know, they didn't have the redress and all these kind of things. When, when, uh, when these two, when Andronicus and Junia went to jail with Paul, they didn't get favorable treatment. Now, if you look, um, uh, they also were familiar with the apostles, which means that their upbringing, their familiarity with the Old Testament stuff was pretty neat. The apostles even took notice of, of them. Um, now, he said they actually became Christians before the apostle Paul did. Uh, now, if you look at verse 8, uh, you're going to see Ampli uh, Ampliatus. Uh, he's just, he's beloved. In other words, everybody loves that guy. There's some people in church that are like that even today. Then there's Urbanus. He was a worker. Uh, he worked with, with um, uh, he says he was a fellow worker in Christ. He was, and my beloved Stachis. Now, do any of you have a Stachis friend? Somebody that you just love to hang out with? Yeah, when you look down this list, I mean, the list is not, I mean, it's a lot of people's names, but, the, but what we know about them is not exhaustive, okay? And so you can see the one who is approved in Christ. Uh, uh, you can say the whole family of Aristobulus. Uh, then the Herodian, which is, uh, he's a great, uh, greet my kinsman, another Jew that lives up there in Rome. Greet those that are in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Boy, what a name. Would you want to be a part of that family? Um, the answer is yes, you would, because this person was a believer. Uh, then you can go, I, I just want to be able to say that, that Rufus was a chosen one. His mom was helpful. The, she probably made him some chicken soup for Paul. I mean, you can just see all of the beautiful things. What's going on here? Why are we supposed to greet all these people? The interesting thing is they needed the instruction to do it. And the, and, the, and the imperative is given over 13 times. 13 plus times. The Greek word there is a little hard to translate, but it has something more to do than just saying hi. You know, it's like you coming to church today. Hi, hi, how are you? Hi, hi, how are you? You know, and you go around and do your 33 names. Did you satisfy greeting everyone? Oh, I went home today. I greeted everybody. Now, some of you may not understand what all of this is involved, but, but why would Paul tell us more of these details about the people? Because the word greet has more to do than just saying hello. And that's why you can go to other places in the New Testament, but he summarizes that in verse 16. Greet one another with a, with a kiss. That's a little dangerous in Rehoboth. Might be misunderstood. But the real reason is, is we, under, we misunderstand. Uh, I remember an exercise once. There was a conflict that was going on. And somebody came to me and they said, oh, this person's not getting along with this person. And they said, come together and give each other a hug. I happen to be one of those people. How do you think I felt? I'm, I was like, yes, I was born for this. You know, you have this tension. You know that the tension exists. And the mediator comes and says, you need to give a hug. Now, what ended up happening when they gave a hug? Well, that was an uncomfortable hug. It really wasn't a holy kiss. But it was an interesting thing because when you come together like that, you're, and you have tension, you know that the tension exists. You can't pretend. You can't blow it off. I found it interesting that, that that mere exercise, which actually led to uh, deeper discussions and, and a greater understanding of what this greeting idea is, is that there is a fellowship that's supposed to be among the saints. 
In chapter 12, if you go back there, he explains it. As much as is possible, live at peace with those who are in the household of faith. Now, it does say as much as is possible. Sometimes it's not possible. Sadly. If Christians can't get along, how do you expect anybody else to? If we have the same head of the body, uh, you know, when we 1 Corinthians 14, then, then if we're all following the same head, if we all have the same master, uh, Romans, Romans chapter 16, then why aren't we all marching in the same drumbeat? Why aren't we all marching in the same direction? It's really kind of interesting when you look at this. The Apostle Paul has been dealing with the people who have the master named Jesus, and he ends up telling them, I want you to help Phoebe. She's helping everybody else. Help her. And then he ends up saying, greet these people. And it's not just a casual hello. It is involve yourself in their lives. And part of the reason that he had to write it all out is because the people living in Rome didn't know that there were any other people in Rome. They were Christians. I mean, Rome did not say, hey, Christians, you're wonderful, you're welcome here. They did not, I mean, they had a border up there that said, Christians not allowed. You know what happened in AD 63? The emperor ended up coming up with a cool decree. Let's put all these Christians on, on, on poles and we'll light them on fire and they can light up the city for us. That's part of history. Nero was nasty. Now, when you, when you think about this, if you're going to Rome and, you're, and Paul's writing to the people in Rome and he says, hey, there's a relationship you're supposed to have with one another in Rome. Let me tell you about this one and 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 this one. And then when you get that, it's like, wow, cool. I'm not alone. When you greet these people, they're not your enemies. They're not. And they're not all identical. But they have the same master. Now, he also tells people over here that are in the darkness. Stay out of the light here. These people, you don't want to give them that greeting. These people, you don't really want to spend a lot of time with them if you're a naive person. If you're a rookie in Christ. These people are not the ones you're supposed to make your best friends. These people here, over here, don't have Jesus as their Lord and Master. They don't have him as curios, as Lord. These people here, they have religion, they have some of the, the vocabulary, they have uh, religiosity, they, they have a form of godliness, but they don't know Christ. These people over here, they want to have friends. They want to have influence. They have an appetite for something. You know, when you look at, at the, not the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but when you look at the chart that says the four things that pull at, at people's passions, uh, some people have to have power. Some people have to have popularity. And those are the outgoing ones. The ones who are introverts, they have to have control of their circumstances or they just have to have a comfortable life. I don't know what your appetite that draws you in different ways, but I'm telling you when you're, when you're dealing with the people that are in the darkness that don't have Jesus as their master, uh, he says, be aware of them and avoid them. In a sense, there should be a line that you're not crossing over if you're naive. Why? Because naive people will fall prey to their deception. They'll hear these voices, hey, you over there, come on and do this with us. My son Christian, this week, was out in Salt Lake City. Okay, the whole group of people with Impact 360 uh, flew out there and uh, they had to sleep on a three-inch mattress, blow up. He said it was a little tough. Um, but anyway, they went from door to door, knocking on doors, and he said there were a lot of people there that they got to talk to. 
He was amazed at how many doors were open. And he said, it's pretty weird doing door to door in 2021. For Tracy and I, that's what we did when we were younger too. It's like, that's how you sharpen your faith. But anyway, they went to the door and Christian gave me his diagnosis as, a, as an 18 year old. He says, dad, he says, it was sad. I'm like, what's coming next? He says, well, the, the Mormon people were really nice. But he said, there were some people that were Christians and he says, they didn't even know what they were talking about. So you had the, the non-believer Mormons, and you had the people who claimed to be believers, and he said, they're not much different. They don't know Christ. And that was even the Christian ones. He said, I'm standing there as an 18-year-old trying to help them because they don't even know what they believe. Whew. Naive. How many of you know the Bible? How many of you have studied to show yourself approved unto God? Someone who doesn't need to be ashamed, who can rightly handle the word of truth. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.15. You know, when you realize that Paul is telling them, hey, these folks over here, they're going to have flattering speech. They're going to make it sound fun. They're going to make it look like it's normal. They're going to tell you all these alternatives. They're going to take the gospel and they're going to pollute it a little bit. And some are going to want to be deceived. Mark those that cause division and strife and avoid them. Their flattery speech and their smooth talk is only going to, to deceive. And that's why as Christians, we need to not fall in that camp. And I pray that we don't welcome them into our circles. Now, I do want to evangelize them. There's no point, no negative about that. Now, the last point, which is really quite interesting and I don't have to spend a ton of time on, is the great contrast between the church in Rome and the church in Corinth. Okay, so we have we have God, we have the, the people who trust Christ, and we have the people who don't have Christ as master. In this particular group, we split them into two groups. We have the, the people that are in Rome that Paul is writing to, and we have the people that are in Corinth that Paul is writing from. Paul spent a lot of time in Corinth. Corinth is a, is a, is a city that's right beside the, uh, uh, by the waters. It's pretty kind of cool. It's really, really neat if you get to go to Corinth. It, it, it reminds me a lot of, of a, a coastal city with a port. You know, not too different from what we have here. You know, and there's a lot of people coming and going. There's a lot of commerce happening. And there's a lot of free thought that goes into places. Hence, Rehoboth flies lots of different flags. Now, what I'm trying to say, though, is that there was the church in Corinth and the church, or the church in Rome and the church in Corinth. Was there any difference? Hmm. Just think about that for a moment. The church in Rome, we have all these announcements that they're being told that they need to help, they need to have fellowship with, and they also need to be on, on alert. Now, why do they need that instruction? Why do the guys in Rome need all that? What do you think they might need it for? Because they didn't understand it and they didn't practice it. It wasn't normal for them. I mean, the reason why the Apostle Paul gave them instruction is because they needed the instruction because it wasn't natural. It wasn't happening. And so he gives them this guidance. The church in Rome is, is, a, is a shallower church. It doesn't have all of the things. They don't have the, 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 the leadership. The Apostle Paul is trying to equip leaders to be able to be leaders in Rome. But right now they're a rookie church. Now, they do have a bunch of people that had training from before. And whenever you go to the big city, whenever you go to Washington, D.C., there's going to be smart people. But they needed the doctrines. Why do you think he wrote a 16-chapter epistle to them? Why didn't he just give them a six-chapter? 
Do you understand? They needed it. The church in Rome needed it. And then you had the church in Corinth. Now, who's in the church of Corinth? If you look at the verses, let me explain it to you. Uh, all the people in Rome are beginning in verse 3 all the way down to verse 16. But if you go to uh, verse 21... Verse 21, now look at the church in Corinth of the people that are hanging out with the Apostle Paul. Timothy, my fellow worker, uh, and Lucius, and Jason, and Sassipater, uh, and, and he says Tertius, and also Gaius, who is the host, and also Erastus, the city treasurer, and Quartus. Uh, now, they list, I think, seven people there. So you got the people over here, you got the 26, and I think you got the seven over here. Did you notice any difference between them? Well, you already know that the 26 over here, they were getting instruction on how to love one another because they still needed that instruction. Maybe that's where we are. How do we love one another? How do we greet each other? How do we avoid those who cause divisions and strife? You know, we, maybe we need to spend a little bit more time in, in Romans chapter 1 through, through 11 to get that. Now, the people in Corinth, this was Paul and his seven friends, Timothy and Sassipater and, and some of the other, Erastus and Gaius. I mean, think it's really cool. Now, what do you learn about them? They are sending their greetings. Instead of giving instruction, they're sending them. They're saying, we love you. We love you guys over in Rome. We're not abandoning you. We're, we're getting the stuff together to help you. And you could just look at it. Now, those seven names. I loved it today when, uh, when one of the guys in the booth told me, he says, hey, there's this guy in there that actually says, hi. He says, I wrote the actual book of Romans. Did you know that? His name is Tertius. Now, I didn't know this as I've been doing some study. I've never really heard many people preach on Romans uh, chapter uh, 16. But Tertius... Uh, and, and then he, and there's another guy, Quatros, okay, and, and, uh, there's, and it implies that that was, um, I think Donald Barnhouse explained it this way. He said that if you understand the culture back then, these actually were servants. Those of you that watch Downton Abbey and you have all those people that live in the basement, I'm sure some of you must have watched that. You know, when you little ring the bell and the people bring you this and they do this and do this. Well, you have your number one and your number two and your number three and your number four. There's a pecking order on who's in charge to make things work. Well, in this particular passage, it, it, Tertius is number three and then Quatros is number four. You may have never thought of it that way. We don't know about number one, Primus, or number two, Secutus. But they're somewhere, but they just didn't get mentioned. Tertius got mentioned. You know why? Let me explain it to you like this. It's Barnhouse that I think did a pretty good job of explaining it. That when the Apostle Paul was living in Corinth, he was living in the house of Gaius. Gaius was no doubt a Roman uh, affluent guy. Gaius had a big enough house because the Bible tells us he had a church that met in his house. And that's where the Corinth people ended up gathering quite a bit. That's where a lot of the greetings in Corinth took place was over at Gaius's house. Now, Gaius being well-to-do, he was the one that put up and gave a room to Paul and some of these other guys, and, uh, and apparently he had a house full of servants, a number one, number two, number three, number four. And so when Paul was staying there, Paul had the luxury of having an amanuensis, a secretary. And so Tertius is the secretary. He's assigned by Gaius to help the apostle Paul, and he wrote the whole 16 chapters of the epistle. Pretty cool, isn't it? But if you look at, at the way that Tertius says it, he says, I've done this as a laborer in the Lord. He didn't do it as a slave. He did it as an offering. Because I believe that Tertius was a Christian too. 
And when you look at these other guys that God raised up, Timothy being a young man in the faith that Paul poured his life into, and then you find some of these other characters, it is amazing that the people in Corinth, they had a heart for the kingdom of God, for the church of Jesus Christ. And if you understand that, wow, do you see the difference between the church in Corinth and the church in Rome? That's part of that contrast. And that one has to do with uh, maturity, the maturity distinction. And I pray that the maturity distinction will fade away. You see, the maker distinction will never change. God will always be God and will never be God. The master distinction can change. Even today at the, at the tent meeting tonight, God can change a life. He can change someone's heart. He can do an Acts 9 on any individual that lives in Sussex County. This day they were this way, and tomorrow they're this way. Why? Because God spoke to them and changed their heart. He regenerated them. He opened their eyes of faith, and he poured the truth into them. And once they were blind, and now they can see. That can change. The last one about the maturity, it's going to change too. You see, I believe that God is going to change us to be perfect in his timing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says, when, when, uh, when we're caught up together, we'll be changed. And 1 Corinthians 10, or 13, verse 10, he ends up arguing that now we know in part we limited, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be, will be done away. In other words, that God is going to change us so that we're known even as also we know. That day is coming. Maturity is starting to happen. When you come to church, I pray that you grow in your faith. You grow closer to Christ. And you're not wondering whether God was there or not. Uh, it is time for communion. I want to be able to challenge you as we come to the Lord's table. Is that this, how did the people in Corinth, uh, I'm going to stand in here, the church in Rome and the church in Corinth, how did they do communion? Well, I'm standing here in the Corinth church and I'm going to tell you, Back in the early days when Paul was preaching to the Corinth church, they didn't get it very well. If the elders could gather together right now, I'm going to end up praying in a moment. But in Corinth, Paul had to write to them and explain it very well. And he said, hey, it's not a snack. It's not something you just do for fun. This is a sacrament, and it's connected to the word and sacrament. And so he explains it to them in 1 Corinthians 11. And you can hear it, how he says, hey, some of you were, were treating it like a meal. You were even drinking so much wine you could get drunk. He says, time out. That's wrong. He says, if you don't discern the Lord's body, you're going, some of you are going to be sick and some of you are going to even die. Serious stuff. He was pushing for maturity. I'm calling for that today. And so uh, as the elders would come forward and have seat on the front, I want to be able to uh, lead us in communion. I would like Dave, if you'd come on up.